everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. We have on our show today Nazgul Ganoush, a senior research analyst at the Sentencing Project. While at the Sentencing Project, she has written about the declining prospects for parole on life sentences racial perceptions of crime, and about best practices for eliminating racial inequality in the criminal justice system. Her work has regularly been featured in the Washington Post, New York Times, and on the media. Welcome to our show, Nazgul. Thanks so much, David. Great to be here with you. So, I, th- I think we should start with uh, telling us a little bit about your work with the Sentencing Project. Sure thing. So I've been at the Sentencing Project for six years now, and we are an organization that's been around for over 30 years. And our focus and our goal is to do research and advocacy in order to achieve a more fair and effective criminal justice system. And so what that translates to more concretely for me is the fair part is about reducing racial disparities in incarceration and the effective part is about reducing the overall level of number of people that are in prison and jail since we know we have way too many people behind bars. And so um, my work has focused on um, trying to get a very detailed analysis of why we have racial disparities in the criminal justice system and how class contributes to those racial disparities, and highlighting exactly what jurisdictions around the country are doing to tackle those disparities so that other parts of the country can model their reforms after what's happening and build on what's already being done. And I've also looked at overall trends and incarceration rates to identify, again, what are the states that are making some of the um, best progress in terms of reducing their level of people in prison so that other states can see hey, we can make bigger strides in in, um, decarceration. Other states have done it. They've been able to reduce crime rates while they've done it. And then another area that I focused on lastly is um, on extreme sentencing. So before I came to the sentencing project, I wrote uh, my dissertation as part of the PhD program that I was at in UCLA, actually. And uh, so my focus there was on people serving parole-eligible life sentences And I continue to focus on what's happening around parole and life sentences as part of my work at the Sentencing Project. And we have a campaign now that we've um, been carrying out for the last year to end life imprisonment around the country. And so some of my research has also been in support of that campaign. 
So what do we know about those things so far? Okay, well, so in terms of the overall scale and trends and incarceration level, what we know is that um, in recent years, there's been a modest reduction in the prison population in the United States. It's been about a 7% decline since the prison population reached its peak level in 2009. So on the one hand, that's really notable because it, it was nearly four decades that uh, the prison population went up every single year for almost four, four decades. And so in that way, in that sense, we're in a very different era now. Um, but on the other hand, the pace of decarceration has been really slow. So that 7% reduction since 2009, um, it translates to about a 1% reduction every year for the, you know, given the years that we have data for. And, um, and that means that if we keep going at that rate, if we want to have a goal of cutting the prison population in half, which is something that organizations like the ACLU have advocated for, and I think a lot of people that when they think about more concrete, concretely, what do we mean by ending mass incarceration? A goal like a 50% cut would, would bring us much closer to what we have in mind. If we keep going at the rate that we've been going at, it's going to take, we've calculated that it would take 72 years to cut the prison population in half. And I think that's a much slower pace of progress than people have in mind. Um, so that's just the overall big picture. When you look more closely and you see that some states have made a lot of progress, like actually New York, New Jersey, California, uh, Connecticut, these are all states that have reduced their prison populations by over 25%, even though in California, some of those people have been diverted to jails. But, um, but these, this group of states shows that we can make a much, much bigger dent in the prison population while not at all harming um, public safety in, in our communities. So that's what we know about overall trends in decarceration. I was going to ask, what is it that we don't know yet? Oh, gosh. Okay. What we don't know yet is, well, I, I guess <clears throat> a couple things that we don't know, I think. Um, one of them is uh, concretely in terms of understanding trends, we know that the um, racial the racial disparities in incarceration has been coming down, have been coming down in recent years, especially for women, but to some extent for men as well. And we don't quite have a sense yet of what exactly has been bringing that about. There's still unacceptably high levels of disparity between the black and white incarceration rates and Hispanic and white incarceration rates. But there's been some progress and we don't quite have a handle of how that's been achieved. I think that it pro probably comes from the fact that a lot of reforms have happened in urban areas where people of color disproportionately live. But so that's something that we still need to understand. Something else that we still need to understand in terms of um, politics and, and advocacy is how we get people on board with a very important goal of reducing incarceration levels for people with violent convictions. So one of the reasons it's going so slowly to reduce the prison population is that most of the reforms that have been happening so far have been around nonviolent drug offenses. And yet, if you look at the prison population, half of the people there are, have a violent conviction, and that includes crimes like assault, robbery, also murder and rape. And what we don't know is how do we move away from this world that we're in now, where one in seven people in prison is serving a life sentence, often for a violent crime, very serious violent crime, 
And yet many of these people are very old, have aged out of crime. It's safe to release them to, to their communities. Um, but how do we get the general public on board with, with that understanding? And how do we get elected officials to move in that direction to carry out that vision? Yeah, I think along those lines, we had Rachel Barco come out here uh, last July, and uh, and she made a similar point that we've basically kind of grabbed the low-hanging fruit of criminal justice reform by going after low-level offenses, but until we can get at these long sentences, these violent crimes, there's not much we're going to—we're we're not going to make a huge dent in the prison population. Yep, that's exactly exactly right. And I think that's not to take away from the huge achievement that a lot of advocates and organizers have had in scaling back the drug war, because on the one hand, it, you know, we can see it as a low-hanging fruit, but certainly it hasn't been easy even to scale back the drug war. Uh, but it does, sometimes some of these efforts have actually come at the expense of doing the harder work that we still need to do of scaling back penalties for violent crimes. So sometimes legislators will, will pass bills scaling back penalties for, for drug offenses. At the same time, they'll couple that with, with, with mandatory life sentences, expanding mandatory life sentences for other kinds of crimes. And so the I think there's growing understanding now that as we continue to chip away at the drug war and excessive sentences for, for property crimes, we need to make sure that we are also letting folks know that that, you know, this is a population that's most, that, you know, for whom we have the most empathy and, and who we think that is least deserving of incarceration and most in need of treatment. But a lot of people with violent convictions who go into prison, you know, after a couple of years of incarceration, and especially if they're serious crimes, after decades of incarceration, they are no longer a public safety risk. And so we need to think about them in the same way and realize that they actually have some of the lowest recidivism rates for people that are released from prison. So I want to kind of circle back. Um, what do you see as the key driver for mass incarceration? Well, um, so I guess technically, if I were to think about the nuts and bolts of how it's happened, what we know is that in the 1970s, 80s, and until the mid-90s, crime rates went up in the United States. People that are you know, over the age of 30 will remember how things were um, in the 90s you know, and, 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 and earlier. Um, the, the, the lower level of safety that you would have walking around in urban areas. During that time, um, legislators and, and um, uh, practitioners really got tough on crime, and it was an extreme overreaction to that crime spike, um, that very long period of crime spike that got us to the policies that have created mass incarceration. And specifically, those policies have been uh, the drug war, so arresting a lot more people for drug offenses and sending them to prison. But not just that, it's also been uh, a greater likelihood of being incarcerated once you're caught with any kind of offense. So whereas in the past, if you were convicted of a burglary, you might get probation um, you're much more likely to get a prison sentence now. And then the final factor has been much longer prison sentences across the board. So a homicide did not mean uh, 30, 40, 50 years in prison, um, you know, in a, in a couple generations ago in our country. We've dramatically increased prison terms, especially for violent crimes. So those are the factors, I would say. And I think that something that has really um, a foundational 
support for these kinds of policies has been issues of racial and class bias in our society. So that when we had the uptick in crime, instead of investing in making sure that people had access to drug treatment, instead of investing to make sure that people had access to um, high quality early education, um, job training opportunities, what we invested in instead was a lot of policing and a lot of jail and prison. And I think that we wouldn't have made the same decision as a country if when people thought about crime, they thought about it more as a problem that affected white communities rather than a problem that disproportionately affects low-income communities of color. And we see that to some extent now in the um, in the response to the opioid crisis, the, the greater willingness to think about it as a public health concern um, rather than just as a criminal justice issue. A lot to unpack there, um, but I, I want to start with this. Um, it sounds like you're saying this is a public policy problem. Uh, am I correct? That's definitely what I'm saying. What we know is that since the 90s, crime rates have fallen dramatically. So right now, uh, violent crime rates, homicide rates, property crime rates are about half the level that they were at in the 1990s. But as I mentioned, the prison population has only come down by about 7% in, um, within the last decade. Um, whereas if you look internationally, you see that a number of countries experienced a crime uptick during the same period that we did. And they've also had falling crime rates during the same period that we've experienced a crime drop. But the United States is exceptional in creating the problem of mass incarceration during this period. And with some people patting themselves on the back, thinking that mass incarceration has helped to lower crime rates, when we can see that uh, over two dozen other countries, researchers have shown, have experienced a smaller drop in crime rates without dramatically increasing the prison population. So how do you think it's possible to cut the prison population in half, and can we do it quicker than 75 years? Well, we need to continue to scale back the drug war. Um, so right now, it's about 19% of the prison population is there for drug conviction, but a lot more people are there as a result of the, the tentacles of drug law enforcement. So for example, if someone has a property crime conviction or um, even a violent crime conviction and they are released from prison and they're placed on parole, if they test positive for marijuana in their system, even in some states where marijuana is legal for recreational use, that trigger that can trigger a technical revocation of their term of their community supervision and send them back to prison. They're counted as having not as someone with a drug conviction, but as someone who's there for their original offense. But what sent them back to prison is use of drugs, possession of drugs, things like that. So that's one thing. But we do really need to think beyond ending the drug war. We need to scale back reliance on prison sentences for property crimes, and in some instances for violent crimes as well. So there's an organization um, in New York City, for example, that's called Uncommon, uh, I'm sorry, no, um, it's Danielle Serez organization in New York City. And what they do is they practice restorative justice within the DA's office, um, some DA's offices there. And they allow even people who, who are victims of, let's say, a hate crime in New York City um, to participate in a restorative justice program where the person who uh, attacked them has a chance to make up for the, the harm that they caused and not necessarily be incarcerated as a result of as a result of going through this process if they follow through on their commitments to make up for the harm. So it's not just a matter of diversion 
I think a lot of people would not, you know, would want someone to experience incarceration if they cause more serious harm to them or to their loved ones. But we need to think about how much prison is enough. When someone is sent away to prison for even a homicide, should they be going in there for uh, a life without parole sentence? In a number of countries that we'd like to think of as our peer countries and European countries, they've completely abolished life without parole sentences. Um, a number of experts in the United States on parole and um, on sentencing, like the American Law Institute, suggest that everybody in, in prison have a chance at having their sentence reconsidered after 15 years of incarceration. Um, so we really need to incorporate that into our policies so that once people are older and have aged out of crime, because it's very clear that crime rates spike in people's early 20s and then they fall precipitously after. So when we have people in prison in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond, we what we're doing is we're holding people behind bars because we're very mad about what they did or because sometimes actually, sometimes victims of families want people um, out of prison that harmed them, but the, the, you know, hands are tied and we're not allowing enough discretion so that in those kinds of cases, sentences can be reviewed. So we're holding people in prison because we're angry about what they did, or sometimes that's the case, but we're not realizing that the cost of incarcerating them is so much higher as they get older and that's money that we're not investing in much more effective crime control policies. So we would be better off making sure that there would be no wait list for drug treatment in this country for anybody. Anyone that has a substance use problem, if they want to get treated for that, we, should, we have the resources in this country. We're just misallocating them so that, you know, that person should be able to be treated because not treating people with substance use disorder can contribute to them committing crimes in order to sustain um, access to drugs or results in them selling drugs for which then they can get incarcerated. Um, things like making sure we have universal uh, early education, high quality early education in our country, um, addressing issues of residential segregation. Um, these are the kinds of investments that we should make if we want to actually make a dent into crime and into preventing future victimization rather than keeping elderly people behind bars for crimes they committed you know, before millennials were even born. Yeah, I think uh, I think we should discuss a little bit more um, this idea of aging out of the system because I think a lot of people don't realize that you get to a certain age and you just stop committing crime. Um, can you talk about the research on that? Sure. So there's a this is a very well established idea within criminology that there is what's called an age crime curve that um, once people enter adolescence, especially boys, they are more likely to commit crimes. As they're very, they're sort of at peak crime rates in their early 20s, and then they begin to move away from criminal offending. And um, some researchers like Alex Piquero has said that, has documented that most people's criminal careers, so-called, do not last longer than 10 years. So even people that are engaged in a lot of crime, typically by 10 years, they move away from that lifestyle. And there are a number of reasons for that. Partly it has to do with brain development. Adolescents are more impulsive. They're more guided by what their peers are doing. They're less thoughtful about the consequences of their actions. Um, and adolescents, increasingly people are realizing, doesn't end at age 18. It, it, brain development continues um, typically until age 24, 25. Um, so that's one issue. The other issue is that as people get older, 
there are certain trappings of life that just guide you away from criminal activity. So you might become, you might enter a romantic relationship or you, you're going to be, if you have, if you're able to get employed um, or just getting older and, you know, creature bones and muscles, all those things make it so that the kinds of um, behaviors that you might've been engaging in that were illegal in your, as a teenager or in your early twenties, all of that becomes less attractive as you get older. Um, and so some of, uh, some, we're seeing increasingly policies that are responsive to this understanding. So the Supreme Court ruled, has ruled, um, in the last decade that juvenile life without parole, life without parole is not an appropriate sentence for most crimes committed, um, under age 18. So it can only be a sentence that is issued for homicide and it has to be, um, a discretionary sentence, not a mandatory sentence for homicide. Some states have built on this decision and the scientific research behind it to say, well, we need to recognize that emerging adults or late, later age adolescents are also still developing and our criminal codes should reflect that. So, for example, in California, there are um, specialized parole hearings now for youth so, uh, so that people convicted up to age 25 who are serving a life sentence they get special parole hearings that take into consideration their use at the time of their crime and their greater propensity for rehabilitation for people that, that are convicted at such a young age. Um, and we see similar movements around the country um, to, to take into consideration and expand the, the kind of um, rehabilitative orientation that we have in our juvenile justice system to beyond age 18, to include people in their early 20s. I think, you know, part of the problem that people have is they envision a world full of Charles Mansons where there, there's clearly something going on and, you know, the perception was that he was a danger until the end. Now, whether he was or not, who knows, but that's how people view the world and yet those are pretty rare individuals, is there a way to kind of address the norm while protecting against the unusual dangerous person who's going to be a danger throughout their life? Sure. So, you know, one thing we need is that would support this to give us a better understanding of who we're talking about when we talk about um, people serving life sentences or people convicted of homicide is better media coverage, more representative media coverage to give us the realization that most people are not Charles Manson's, most people are not uh, the high school shooters. You know, when we're talking about young people that are getting these kinds of sentences, they often are uh, low-income people of color that experienced a lot of trauma in their youth and, you know, and that for whom the system really failed, the system really failed to give them the kind of treatment and services that they needed. Um, and then I think what really also helps is for people to re to get a sense um, either personally or, you know, through their networks or through uh, media accounts of what these people become, how they change after they spent a long time in prison. So when I was in California doing my dissertation research about people serving parole eligible life sentences, I had a chance to meet with several people in prison after spending a lot of time with their families outside and learning about the advocacy that they were doing to try to increase their possibility of getting paroled. And when I would meet with these people in prison, I would, 
you know, it was, it would take me a couple of seconds to adjust to realizing that, you know, the, the loved one that would talk to me about them would tell me a lot about how they were in their youth and how they have been recently. But, you know, they've really gotten a lot older now. They're really quite mature. They're not, you know, they can, they, they can be very reflective on the crime that they committed. They very repent. They have a lot of, um, um, regret. They have a lot of, you know, some of them have a really strong desire to, make amends and give back to their community to make up for the harm that they've caused. And those are the kinds of stories. And that's the kind of window into people that are incarcerated, even who have committed very serious, uh, very violent crimes in their youth, that we just don't have a lot of opportunities to, to see. And I think seeing that and seeing, you know, kind of getting a sense of you know, if you just are reporting or reading about a story and you see the mugshot of the person when they went in at age 18, you're not really getting a sense of the fact that they're in their 50s now, they're in their 60s now, some of these people that we're talking about. And when you look at the chances that some of them have had to be released from prison. Um, so, for example, in Maryland, there was a lawsuit that released almost 200 people that were serving uh, life sentences who had served really typically over 25 years. And when you look at this, this, this little picture, it's like, it's a geriatric population. You know, these are people who, if it weren't for this lawsuit, they would not be released because of how reluctant the, the governor is in that state, um, as some governors in California have been, to allow parole boards to grant parole to people serving life sentences. So I think it's a combination of, you know, really getting a sense of who these humans are that we're talking about, like who they are right now and how they've rehabilitated despite all the limitations of what prisons have to offer. But also just looking at the data of when you look at life prison in California, who's been released, um, there's been a report from Stanford University that shows that uh, this is a population that has a minuscule rate of recidivism. This is a population that is the, the safest to be releasing from prison, but because we're so focused on their original offense, we have a hard time seeing what the data and seeing what the people themselves can show us. Um, so if you could structure the sentencing system to fit the data that you have, what would you do? Well, uh, first get rid of mandatory sentencing so that judges can make uh, customized decision uh, that would be appropriate for every individual that they're sending to prison. And second, uh, something that we advocate for at the sentencing project as part of our campaign to end life imprisonment is to limit sentences to 20 years at the time of sentencing. So by doing something like that, um, it's just, it would be, it would have a couple of different implications. One of them is that we would say, for nobody at the time of sentencing can we say that you are not capable of redemption, of rehabilitation, that we are maintaining the possibility that everyone that goes into our system, we can, you know, we have prison, we have services to offer within these institutions that's able to transform this individual. And after this maximum period of time of 20 years for the most serious offenses, after that period of time, we will reassess you. And if that investment has not worked, if we feel that it's still not safe to return you to our communities, then we can incarcerate you for longer. So this is, for example, a system that exists, something very much like this in Norway. And so there, they're limited 21 years. Even, even people who have committed the most serious offenses there 
can never get a sentence longer than 20 years and it will be reassessed. And so the people who, it's, you know, we feel that it's never safe to release them. We can, we can uh, keep those people behind bars, but that should be a reasonable assessment, not one made by someone that a governor appoints and is afraid to be, uh, you know, to be haunted by their decision afterwards. It should be someone who has some expertise in making these kinds of calculations. So, and is, and is adequately insulated from the political process to make a reasonable assessment of risk. So those are some of the changes that I would suggest. And then I, I would also, uh, you know, dramatically scale back the drug war, not just for users, but also for sellers and dramatically increase access to treatment. So one of the things that uh, recently I was looking at issues around the opioid crisis and one of the facts that really stood out to me is that in our federal prison system, which has about 170,000 people, and then, you know, we have two, two, 1.5 million people in prison, another 700,000 in jails. Of those 1.5 million in prison, about 170,000 are just in the federal system. Everyone else is in state prisons. Um, in the federal system, there is no profession, there's no medication assisted therapy if you have an opioid, if you have opioid use disorder. And this is common in a number of states as well. It's, it's exceptional if you are, are entering a jail or prison and you are able to access medication assisted therapy like buprenorphine or methadone and you have an opioid use disorder. And that just that tells me that you know, that, that just signals such a level of brokenness in our system that we are incapacitating people in prison if they want medical treatment, which is considered the best gold standard of treatment for opioid use disorder. We're not offering that, offering that to them when they're held captive in, our, in, that, in those systems and those institutions. And so even just more broadly, you know, expanding access to drug treatment, professional drug treatment, not just Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, in communities, but also especially for people that are incarcerated. If we're incarcerating people, we need to make sure that since most people that are incarcerated are released back into their communities, that we're releasing them better off than they started off going in. So let me play devil's advocate. Um, we had a 15-year-old um, in, in my town, Davis, California, committed a horrific double murder uh, described getting this thrill and exhilaration from stabbing and torturing this elderly couple. And everyone is up in arms every time a um, sentencing reform bill comes up. There have been uh, a couple of uh, bills. One is Prop 57 and the other is AB 1391. Uh, which have made it much easier to have this guy potentially released at the age of 25. How do we safeguard against kind of the exceptional person in the system? Well, I think that um, usually there, there is, I think that there are a lot of safeguards in place and a lot of proposals that a lot of reform proposals that I've seen, almost all of them. I think that the, um, you know, when we say, for example, that um, prosecutors should be able to send cases back to judges for resentencing, when, when we think about second look bills that are being proposed or parole bills that expand the possibility of parole, that means that an expert who is considering 
um, interest of community, you know, community interests that include public safety, but also can include um, the trauma and victims' perspectives and so on. In those kinds of hearings, they would factor all that into consideration. Um, and so then, you know, somebody who's committed a very serious offense like this, then they, there would be a possibility to say, well, you know, given the terms of this crime and given where this person is at now and where the community is at now, we don't feel that they've served enough time. So I think that a lot of the reforms that I see maintain that possibility. But I think that what the, on the other end of the spectrum, what I worry about is tying people's hands, prosecutors and judges, so that they cannot release people when they do not exhibit a risk to public safety, when the community wants them back. So um, as part of my research in California, I would spend time sometimes with some lifers and, or people that were formerly serving life sentences and learn about how um, the judge wanted, their sentencing judge thought it was safe to release them. The mother of the victim wanted them released family members of the victim wanted them released. They were in contact. They knew that this person had changed. They knew that this person uh, wanted to make amends and so on. Um, and they could not do anything about it because they would go through the parole process. The parole board would hear comments from all these individuals and still um, deny parole or in California, sometimes grant parole and the governor would take that parole date away. And so we need to have a balance where we're not tying people's hands because of these worst cases that are not representative. And we're allowing, um, we're making sure that we're not tying up public resources uh, in incarcerating people who are not like these kinds of examples. And even in these examples, in these worst case examples, we have to consider, do we want to, at the time of sentencing, make it impossible for this person to be released? Or do we want to say that even this individual is capable of rehabilitation and redemption. Even the victim, uh, in this case, or, or their survivors, are it's possible for them to forgive this person eventually. And we want to maintain that possibility so that their voice can be heard later on and incorporated into determining whether or not this person should be incarcerated. And then just one other thing that I would add is that a lot of times when I think about, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. now, and there's a bill that's being considered here to allow for judges to resentence people after they've served 15 years in prison for crimes that they committed under the age of 25. And currently judges in DC have that power to do that for people convicted under age 18, but this bill would expand it to people whose crimes were under age 25. When there's opposition to a bill like this from prosecutor's office, for example, in DC it comes from the US Attorney's Office, who's a Trump-appointed position. Um, when there, you know, when these kinds of cases, these, you know, recent high profile, really terrible cases are brought up, a lot of times we think about the solution to that is to really throw the book at this person and make sure that they can't get out. But I think that the solution to that is to look and see what, which of our systems failed to prevent this person from having this outcome that they're describing, you know, pleasure from inflicting trauma on others. A lot of times these kinds of individuals fell through the cracks. They didn't get the kind of psychiatric help they needed. They fell through foster care systems. There are a number of institutions that failed these people. And we need to use these examples as kind of like a, 
uh, as NASA does, NASA does when it has a failed shuttle launch and looking back and seeing what failed so that we can fix that and prevent this kind of thing happening in the future. I think that's, those are the extra steps and that's where a lot more attention needs to be placed instead of making sure that that person and along with a lot of other people that are not necessarily like them or that are, you know, capable of redemption are incarcerated for a long time. And then my final question is deceptively simple. Um, how do we reduce racial disparities? Okay, well, I'm glad that you asked that, and it is, it is a deceptively simple question. Um, the way that we reduce disparities, I think, that is to recognize that racial disparities in incarceration come from two places, and a lot of times people want to just focus on one or the other. One of the sources of racial disparity is just within the criminal justice system itself, and um, it has nothing to do with differences in criminal offending, but it has everything to do with how the criminal justice system responds to um, criminal activity when it's from white people, especially wealthy white people versus people of color and in particular low-income people of color. So for example, the ACLU has an analysis showing that whites and African-Americans use marijuana at similar rates, but African-Americans are over three times as likely to get a marijuana possession arrest as uh, compared to whites. And so that's an example that points to that's, you know, no difference in criminal activity, difference in response from policing. So there are a number of examples like this of, um, you know, I can talk a little bit about that, but on the other, the other factor that I think we need to focus on is that that's not the whole explanation. Part of the reason we have racial disparities in the criminal justice system is because of differences in criminal offending. And that's especially the case with the most serious offenses. So if you look at homicide rates in our country, African-Americans are much more likely to be victims of homicide than whites. And homicide is a crime that's an intra-racial crime. People generally kill other people of the same race or ethnicity as them. So that means there are higher rates of homicide offending among African-Americans. And that's because black people in, the, in this country are more likely to live in concentrated urban poverty. If you flip the script in our society and you had African-Americans disproportionately living in rural areas, and, and, and with 10 times as much wealth as whites and white people disproportionately living in urban areas and at higher rates of poverty, you would have much higher rates of white homicide than African-American homicide. So in order to address the differential crimes, which, which is relevant for the most serious crimes, but not for drug offenses, um, we need to get to the problems of why we have such high levels of segregation, why our schools are unequally funded and not providing the same opportunities for people. Those are the kinds of things that we need to fix to address differences in criminal offending. To address the problems that come from our criminal justice system, we need to realize that we need to scale back um, disparities that stem from discretion of who police officers stop and search, who prosecutors charge for offenses that carry mandatory sentences and so on. But we also need to scale back. We need to correct sentencing laws and policies, across-the-board policies that have a disparate impact on um, people of color and African-Americans in particular. So, for example, their crack cocaine sentencing dis disparity or um, broken windows policing, uh, you know, these kinds of um, departmental-wide policies that aren't just about the discretion of individuals. And then something else we need to do is to realize that we have a justice system that works very differently for you if you're wealthy uh, than if you're poor. And so 
um, given that people of color and in particular African Americans are disproportionately poor, that means if you're black, you're less likely to be able to uh, be processed while without being held pre-trial. If you're held pre-trial because you can't post bail, you're going to have a worse outcome. Um, if you can't afford a high-quality, experienced defense attorney and you rely on indigent def defense uh, public defenders that are underfunded, you're not, you may not have as good of an outcome. So these are the kinds of things that we need to do to create a more level playing field um, so that people who are wealthy and privileged don't have much better outcomes than the poor. Well, I think we could talk all day and barely scratch the surface of this stuff, um, which is both interesting but unfortunate. Um, but we are out of time. I want to thank you for being on the show today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. That was Nazgul Ganoush from the Sentencing Project talking about mass incarceration and issues surrounding that sentencing reform limitations to sentencing there, there are a whole host of things that we should be looking at because the current system doesn't work not only are we incarcerating way too many people but we're incarcerating people that really aren't a danger to society at least not anymore this has been everyday injustice i'm your host david greenwald thank you for joining us Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.